Heroes get remembered. Here's the windup. Legends never die. Fastball hits deep to right. This could be it. Way back there. Oh, Welcome to Hardball. Today, I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. Major League Baseball's history in first person. Conversations that span almost 20 years. It is 9.46 p.m. With the men who saw and made that history. Sandy into his windup. Here's the pitch. Many of whom are no longer with us. Swung out and missed a perfect game. Stories from the 1930s. To the 21st century. This is Hardball. Dad, you want to have a catch? Welcome into Hardball. My name is Chris Domino, and today's episode is one I'm very excited for you to hear. Our guest is another Hall of Famer, but his story is as unique as any who ever put on a uniform, let alone ended up in Cooperstown. I had the chance to catch up with Monty Irvin in 2002, and less than two minutes had passed before I realized that class was in session. My story with Monty started and began a few months before this call as we were introduced on the phone when he was in Kansas City and made an arrangement to get together. I was more fortunate to speak with him a few more times afterwards, but I do regret not doing another sit-down with him at any point in his life. I have mentioned that I've never written down questions before any of these conversations. I had heard too many over the years that quickly turned into Q&As and short answers and sounded like depositions riddled with cliches of stories told so often that the guest becomes disengaged. Read everything you can, channel back to other guests whose stories intertwine and connect to the gentleman on the phone, and rely on your fandom. Yes, your fandom, coupled with the respect that everyone's story is both different and important. Monty Irvin holds an incredible place in the game's history, more so than perhaps you know. His place in the Jackie Robinson story is incredible because there was a chance, a want by the Negro League owners, that it would have been the Monty Irvin story. How good an athlete was he? Well, 80-plus years later, he's still considered by many to be the greatest high school athlete in New Jersey's history. So good that he had an assumed name. He'll tell you why. So good that he almost ended up playing college football at Michigan, except a freak injury derailed that, and baseball ended up winning because of it. How early was he being looked at by major league teams? You'll be amazed and why the ridiculousness of racism and fear robbed him and so many others of their days in the sun in major league uniforms. What did his service time in World War II really do to his career? And his thoughts in that time served in Europe almost 60 years later. There's a great story about the 51 comeback for the Giants, and Jackie and Leo DeRocha play a big part. Satchel Paige, Josh Gibson, Ted Williams, barnstorming, it's all here. And he, along with another future guest, Buck O'Neill, were the most instrumental players to help get the Negro League Baseball Museum built in Kansas City. I will send it to my conversation with Mr. Irvin with these quotes. Cool Papa Bell. Most of the black ball players thought that Monty Irvin was our best young player of our time. He could do everything. Roy Campanella, who played with and against the greatest combination of outgoing players and incoming players in the game's history, Monty was the best all-around player I have ever seen. As great as he was in 1951, he was twice as good 10 years earlier in the Negro Leagues. The aforementioned Buck O'Neill, perhaps the greatest ambassador in baseball history, on why he and Monty had such different recollections of the conditions of the Negro Leagues. Buck saying he was in heaven every day, while Monty knew that broken down buses and bounced checks was not the norm in the major leagues. 
It's simple, said Buck. It's because Monty was a great player, and I was just good. Last thing, Monty Irvin perhaps getting it more right than anyone. Baseball has done more to move America in the right directions than all the professional patriots with their billions of cheap words. Here he is, Monty Irvin. This brings up Monty Irvin. Irvin singles sharply to left, scoring Bueller and May. If I pitch, can you catch? Will you hold the ball? Monty Irvin gets his fourth hit in his first four times at bat. That ties the record for hits by one batsman in a World Series game. When you step to the plate, will you swing and fall? Here comes Irvin, and he's safe. Monty Irvin is the first World Series runner to steal home in 30 years. If you play, you gotta know how it's done. Can you catch, can you hold a hard one? When the, the umpire said, safe, Yogi said, no, no. I said, yeah, yeah, Yogi. He said, how do you know? I said, you'll see it tomorrow on the front page of the Daily News and the Daily, Daily Mirror. Tonight, joining me on Broadball, a true legend of the game and a man whose life I found fascinating for a number of years, and I'm very happy to actually have a time to speak with him this evening. He is Hall of Famer Monty Irvin. Mr. Irvin, how are you this evening? I'm fine. I hope you are, too. I, I am very well, sir. Thank you very much. And it's an honor and a pleasure, actually, to actually speak to you this evening. Oh, it's my pleasure. My pleasure to be with you. Uh, it really is a fascinating story on so many fronts, and I'm hoping we can actually cover a few of these things. The first thing that I read about you was in 1938, a lot of the things that happened to you after that time almost didn't happen because of, a, I guess, a cut that was actually on your hand, correct? Yeah. Playing basketball, I, I got a little infection in my, in my middle finger and it traveled up my uh, left arm and settled in my chest. In two or three days, they discovered it was a streptococci infection. Mm-hmm. So I had a heck, heck of a time, you know, about six weeks in the hospital. <sighs> and the only reason why I survived because I was young, good health, an athlete, and so on. Right, so being that strong and youth being on your side, I mean, this might have actually turned as, as bad as something like that could possibly go. That's true, yeah. Now, you were in New Jersey at the time, correct? Yeah, Norris, New Jersey, 1938. Born in Alabama? Yeah. Family, I'm assuming, moved up to New Jersey? Yeah, in uh, 1927. And you were, um, you know, people talk about three sports stars. You actually were not only that, I think you received 16 letters, not the 12 that a lot of people talk about. I'm assuming track might have been in there as well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I participated in track, too. Javelin, shot, put, discus. And may I ask, because one of the things I was actually told is you almost went to college on a football scholarship, correct? Oh, uh, yeah. I was supposed to go to Michigan, uh, University of Michigan. Mm-hmm. When I got ill, you know, they didn't know whether or not I was going to be, you know, strong enough mm-hmm. or whether I would recover to play, to you know, to play sports, period. So um, my scholarship was, uh, you know, withdrawn. So my family doctor was an alumnus of, uh, of Lincoln University. So I went to Lincoln. University of Oxford, Pennsylvania, on a four-year scholarship. Now, what was your favorite sport actually to participate in? Well, baseball was was my favorite. Uh, in fact, you know, I I was a natural football player. I had to, you know, really work work at at, at, uh, at basketball because uh, uh, you know I wasn't fast, I wasn't slow, I wasn't I wasn't short, and I wasn't tall. <laughs> mm-hmm. I uh, uh, you know, in high school, I, I was the tallest guy. I was six two, and I uh, I was the center. And when I got to college, you know, uh, the competition was was uh, much more intense. Well, you actually played some baseball at a pretty young age against guys who would have been a good deal amount older than you, correct? Though. Oh yeah, yeah. Playing semi pro, I guess at at that point before you actually joined the Newark Eagles, right? Yeah, yeah. I played with the you know with the local team, 
and uh, which was a wonderful team. That's where I got my uh, where I got my start. Who was Jimmy Nelson? Well, that was my assumed name. Uh, in order to uh, retain my uh, amateur Scott, you know, status, mm-hmm. I changed my name to Jimmy Nelson. Jimmy Nelson was a good friend of mine, a wonderful person. He was a catcher, a nice person, you know, great build, and and uh, so. Uh, when they asked me what name I wanted, uh, right away I thought of him. And, uh, you know, he might be still alive somewhere today because, of, you know, almost the same. Maybe he might be a year or two older. Now, did you play in home games for the Eagles, or was it something that I read that you just played in road games to ensure that? Yeah, I would play in uh, in, in, in road games. Home games, I, I, I'd practice, go work out, and then go sit, sit up in the stand. But uh, when we went on the road, I, uh, you know, I played uh, – I played third base. I played outfield. Played shortstop. Now, when you're talking about semi-pro baseball in the '30s, were you paid on a per-game basis? Well, I was playing with the Eagles. You know, they were a member of the Newark, uh, the Negro National League. Right. I'm asking though, playing semi-pro ball before that was that a kind of a pay-for-play? No, 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 we didn't really receive any money. Uh, all we did was uh, we passed the hat. As okay. They said. And uh, you know, enough money to pay the umpires. You know, buy balls and bats, no. but no money. Now, I've, I've spoken to a bunch of gentlemen who played in the Negro Leagues and certainly some gentlemen who remember that time uh, doing this show in the past. The Newark Eagles were a power. Yeah, we had a great club. Uh, you know, we had uh, uh, Willie Wells and Ray Dandridge and Leon Day and then uh, Dick Lundy and, uh, uh, and Biz Mackey and Mule Suttle, Ed Stone, uh, Terrence McDuffie. Oh, we had a great club. Yeah, now, I know good. I know a lot of barnstorming went on, and I know the East-West All-Star game in the Negro Leagues, and I know barnstorming took place where you played some of the major league teams in the offseason. If you took that Newark Eagles team and you placed it into the major leagues, I'm assuming with the names you mentioned, you're as competitive as anybody playing in the major leagues at that time. Oh, yeah. We, we, we usually carry about 16, 17 guys. We could have had, you know, uh, uh, you know about, uh, about eight men, I mean, you know, pitchers and mm-hmm. utility players. Backups, and uh, we, you could put, you could you could have put us right in, into the majors. Yeah, we were, we were good. And you also played in the Mexican League before you actually oh, yeah. served time in World War Two. Played in the Mexican League, nineteen forty-two. You're a triple crown winner, I understand. Well, I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't, uh, I didn't win the, the runs batted in. I think I missed that by one or two. Okay. I came down late. Uh, you know, they started early, and uh, I didn't. Uh, I played a few games with the with the Eagles in forty-two. And then I was offered, a, you know, uh, $500 a month to come to, to, come to Mexico mm-hmm. to play with uh, Veracruz. One of the best years of my life. Uh, you know, I got married at that time, and it was wonderful. You know, it's been a wonderful honeymoon. Plus, you know, uh, earned a few bucks. We got to, had a maid in an apartment about $250 a month. So it was great. Mexico City was a wonderful place. Had great hotels, restaurants. And uh, it was just a, you know, a lot of things to see. It had wonderful bullfights. So it was a brand-new city because it had just been rebuilt from, the, uh, from, from, from an earthquake mm-hmm. that had happened previously. So it was a great, great uh, experience for us. And probably interesting to be a young man from Alabama then New Jersey to actually be spending time and learning the culture, as you just said, of, of another country. Yeah, yeah, which was wonderful because, uh, you know, I, I, I took three years of Spanish, and, uh, you know, I, 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 I could make myself understood. And mm-hmm. then after I got down there, I learned more in, in two or three months than I had in three years in high school. <laughs> now, you're drafted into the Army in 1942. Yes. Um, did, you pl- did, did you play baseball in the services? No, I didn't get a chance to play at all. No. Where did you actually serve, sir? 
uh, uh, one in the states, you know, we uh, uh, in uh, Fort Belvoir, got my uh, basic training in Fort Belvoir, Virginia. Then we went to Camp Claiborne, Louisiana, and then uh, we we got on a boat and, and went to uh, England, Liverpool, England, 19 days in the North Atlantic, which was which was horrendous, <laughs> and uh, then uh, uh, over into France uh, in August. The uh, you know invasion happened on uh, D-Day was uh, uh, June 6. We got there August 1st, and then uh, got a chance to serve up in Belgium for for a short time. Well, let me make sure I note right now. Uh, please thank you again for your time in the service, uh, yeah, because well. we, we we do try to understand that if not for men such as yourself, I've said it before, we might be speaking German and Japanese in this interview right now. That's true. Except uh, you know, you didn't get a chance to play. Uh, I went in the uh, army as a 400 hitter. Came out a 300 hitter. Now, have you? Do you know a gentleman by the I name of Army? I mean World War II. Right, know? Cecil Travis. Yeah, I, I've spoken to Mr. Travis. I actually talked to him last season, and he was another gentleman, a veteran. And some people have told me, and I know Ted Williams has said he's the best hitter that nobody's ever heard of. But his yeah. time in the military might have really cost him his major league career. Yeah, that's what uh, that's what uh, Ted told me. The same thing. He did. Yeah, hmm. he said he's a wonderful, uh, wonderful fellow and a great hitter. Now, can we separate a little fact from fiction? Because this is where I find it gets really intriguing. I know when you come out of the service, I've read in more than one, you know, I try to gather as much information as I can, but I've read on more than one occasion mm-hmm. that Branch Rickey had really earmarked you to be the young man that he was going to sign before even Jackie Robinson. Yeah. That's true. I had, uh, uh, the owners had selected me as the, you know, as a second to none, you know, for, Hitting, running, feeling, throwing, hitting for power. But I wasn't feeling that well after I got out of the Army, so I told him, uh, I said, I'll sign with you, but I don't want to report until I you know, I feel like I'm back up to par. Mm-hmm. So it took me a couple of years to get back. Meantime, of course, they signed uh, you know, they signed uh, Jack in, and they signed Dobie in the uh, in American League. Meantime, you know, the, uh, Roy Campanella and, uh, and Sasha Page and uh, John Newcomb. Any regrets making that decision? Well, no, not as it worked out. Uh, I, you know, I didn't want to, uh, you know, uh, go up and, and, and not make it. And, uh, of course, it, you know, was no doubts before World War II, but uh, I had a few doubts, you know, afterwards. Mm-hmm. So I want to, you know, feel just right and be able to make the plays I used to play, you know, used to make. And, and uh, so I no regrets. No, I don't have regrets. The reason I asked, one of the other things I read was, was Mr. Ricky a little bit hesitant to pay the Eagles owner some money to get you out of your contract at that time as well? Well, yeah. Uh, he, uh, they, they were talking about, you know, bringing me up a little sooner. And uh, he wanted the uh, – they had taken Newcomb and hadn't given her any money at all. This is Mrs. F. Mm-hmm. you know, who was a, yes. you know, the wife of Abe Manley who owned the club. And uh, so they couldn't. Uh, get together. She wanted five five thousand dollars for me, and uh, Ricky said the the contract's invalid. I'm not going to give you anything. So she said, "Well, if you don't, he said I'm going to sue you." So I guess he didn't want any bad publicity. Mm-hmm. So he released me, and in 1948, in in uh, in, a, in the Cuban Winter League, I was signed by the Giants to play. And you get to go back to New Jersey, I believe, correct? 
Yeah, I played with Georgia City in the International League. And isn't it amazing? I mean, I don't know, and certainly things, there are forks in the road, and you make decisions, and things will happen because of that and after that. But isn't it amazing that you end up in New York City competing against the Dodgers and Branch Rickey and a man who maybe was, and as you said, the owners of the league had determined that you might be the, the young man to actually break that color barrier. Yeah, that's true. And uh, uh, see, earlier, I used to say this earlier, uh, they scouted me in 1936. I was in high school, of course. And uh, uh, they sent somebody over, you know, to look me over, and they said, well, uh, he's everything you say he is. I was playing short stuff at the time. I had a rifle for an arm and great power and uh, could run like a, you know, a, you know, uh, run very well. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, they can't, you know, they said, well, he's everything you say he is, but uh, it's just too soon. Uh, I, I don't, you know, I don't think I could, uh, this was the Giants. I think the Giants looked at me and, and, and the Yankees. Did you know those types of conversations were going on, that those oh, people were there to look at you? I found out that until later. And, uh, you know, when I found out, I felt you know, a little bad about it, but uh, you know, I didn't let that deter me. Uh I just kept on trying to do, you know, the best I could, play the best baseball I could. But it is amazing, though, if you think about it, even if you talk about that 10- or 11-year window from 36 to 47, how many lives, and, and, you know, Major League Baseball should have done it way before even 1936. Oh, yeah, they should have started, uh, they should have started like in 1930. <laughs> if they, you know, they'd, they'd have gotten all of, you know, some, some magnificent ball players. I'm talking about... Uh, uh, you know, Smokey Joe Williams and, you know, Satchel Page would have come in there earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, Josh Gibson. Chris Wait, think about it. Maybe if the, if the Yankees, I'm not saying they would have signed a bunch of these guys that they wouldn't have, but the Yankee dynasty maybe isn't what it was. And, and if the wealth was spread out from Negro League players to different teams, the record books might be completely different. I mean, think about how far-reaching the impact is of that 15 or 17 years. That's true. That's true. I heard uh, Satchel Page say one day, he said, you know, if you guys had taken us early, he said we could have, you know, as pitchers, he said we could have cut down on some of those those home runs that were hit, mm-hmm. some of those high batting averages. You know, said uh, you know we'd have we'd have tightened up on you. That's what that's what Satch said. <laughs> and it is amazing. There's a lot of Satchel pages. He said I wasn't the only one. He said it's a lot of us. Raymond Brown and Leon Day and right on down the line. Now the thing that really amazes me again is you really don't start your major league baseball career until you're 32 years old in yeah, 1951. That's true. Yeah. I try. Is it is it disappointing that perhaps people, I know people who follow the Negro Leagues and the All-Star teams that you made and even the people you talked about as far back as 1936 knew what you could do, but is it a little bit disappointing to not perhaps have had more people see what you would have done in your prime for an extended yeah, period of that, time? That's the only thing that I'm, I'm rueful of. The fact that, uh, you know, uh, I, I could have had great numbers and, and uh, you know, the uh, Major league fans, you know, a lot of minor league, you know, fans saw us, and of course, you know, Negro league fans. But the, the major league fans never got a chance to see see Ray Dandridge play third base, uh, one of the most imposing uh, third basemen I've ever seen. Or Willie Wells play shortstop, uh, and and, and uh, you know, Mule Suttleton and and and, and uh, you know, all the rest of those Hall of Famers. Martin DeHigo, Martin DeHigo's from Cuba. I've never seen. Nobody knows anything about Martin DeHigo. But he's a legend. He's a legend in Cuba, and he's a legend in Mexico and, and the other uh, Latin American countries. And the other thing that really comes from that, if you, if you really, again, extrapolate on all of these thoughts, not only do people not get a chance to see those players, but as we said, the game, who won titles, who didn't win titles, how different things might have been, 
And going back, when you said in 36 you found out people were looking at you, we know Branch Rickey, according to all reports, had some sit-downs with Jackie Robinson and said, this is the way it's got to be in the very beginning. You have to be a certain type of man to make sure and ensure this works. Do you think as a younger man you would have also been able to handle the responsibility that was thrust yeah, upon Jackie? I, yeah, I, I can handle it. I, ra- I was raised in a great society, mm-hmm. you know, uh, played with, uh, you know, uh, a lot of white kids. Uh, in fact, most of them were. When, when I came along, you, you couldn't play them on one or two uh, guys on the football team or, or on the basketball team so on. So I was used to that. And, I, you know, I'd heard all the bad words, so it wouldn't have, wouldn't have affected me. Uh, I could always get along with people. I always trying to make a, a, a bad situation better, and uh, so I wouldn't. I wouldn't have had any problem. Uh, Josh Gibson wouldn't have had any problem because he was so terrific. You know, people would just ad- admire him so they would admire him so and, and Buckland the same way and, and, and right on down the line. Uh, Satchel would probably be the only one. And, and again, you know, he was so overpowered. Uh, he he was. Uh, uh, you know, just a little bit different. He, you know, he didn't, he, he didn't, he didn't. Uh, 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 you know, he, he broke a full rule. But once you saw him play, you forgive him, and, and, and uh, you know, able to give him another chance. There's a funny story that I read, and I believe it's a, associated to you. You were playing against Satchel Paige, and I think you might have been hitting second in the order. And you told the gentleman who was going to first, the first batter that Satchel Paige faced that day, that he 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 was in trouble. Yeah. Well, no, it was a, it was a uh, all-star game in in, in, uh, in Chicago. You know what they call all-star? It was the East-West game. Mm-hmm. We call it the you know it was, it was comparable to the all-star game. And uh, <clears throat> in the eighth inning, Satchel was coming in, and uh, Len Pearson, our first baseman, I said, "Len, I feel sorry for." You. He said, "Why?" He said, "Well, you know, you're the first hitter, and you know what Satchel was going to try to do to the first hitter." And, uh, you know, he was uh, a good friend of mine. We played on the, you know, play, he played on the Eagles with me. So he he and, and, and Camp, one of the three of us, you know, were terrific friends. So he went up and took three and came back. And then I said, how did they look? He said, look. He said, I haven't seen them. <laughs> <laughs> Time for some... it, would, it would have to be me to face that son of a gun. <laughs> Time for somebody else to take their shot. Yeah. Now, you mentioned Josh Gibson. Let me ask you this. Obviously, some things in his life, besides being a great baseball player, there was some tragedy that followed him. Do you think his life would have been marketedly different oh, had yeah. he been in the major leagues? Yeah, yeah. They would, have, uh, they would have treated him just like they treated Babe Ruth because he was so great. He had this marvelous uh, uh, physique. He was strong as, as, as two men. And uh, he was boyish. He just loved the game. I've never seen him really get mad at anybody. You know, he, he always had a sense of humor. And uh, 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 women uh, just loved him and men admired him. That's, that's, mm-hmm. that's, where I, I, you know, that's what I say about John. Well, that's he a heck of a, so great. That's a heck of a combination, those two things. That's true. With men and women. Now, that's right. Buck O'Neill told me something interesting. He said that. He's only heard a ball hit a bat a number of times where he actually had to turn his head to see what was going on. He said, uh-huh. Babe Ruth, Josh Gibson, and Mark McGuire. He said the way they hit a baseball, it, it sounded different. And then he went a step further and said, there were only a handful of guys when the ball hit the bat the right way, you could almost smell smoke. <laughs> <laughs> well, he was, he, was, he, was, he was almost right, I tell you. Because uh, he, he, uh, Josh is like Ted when, when Josh would come, you know, uh, you get in the batting circle, you know, uh, you know, in batting practice, 
when he came to the plate, just just in batting practice, everybody stopped and, and uh, mm-hmm. took a look at him. You know, they used to do that with Ted and some of the other great DiMaggio, you know, Brave Ruth, and so on. We mentioned Ted Williams. I know at his induction speech for the Hall of Fame in the early 70s, he made a, a point that, hey, we've got to change a couple of things that are going on with the Hall of Fame. And a lot of people say that might have been the beginning. I know Bob Feller was a gentleman who played in a lot of the tours as well. But how much did Ted Williams making a point of saying, these gentlemen lost their time. We've got to make sure that we think about these guys when we're talking about Cooperstown. Yeah, well, uh, his speech had a, had, a, had, a, had a great impact on, uh, you know, and, and breaking the, uh, you know, the barrier, mm-hmm. you know, for, for other uh, Negro leaguers to, you know, to, to come into the league and, and also to uh, to get into the Hall of Fame. And, see, at that time, you didn't take, you didn't have, uh, there weren't too many statisticians. The, uh, sometimes the, uh, the white press wouldn't, you know, wouldn't even carry the box mm-hmm. scores. They'd, you know, just, they'd uh, you know, give you the result of the game, but it wouldn't carry the scores. And so on. So we didn't, we didn't have too many statistics, you know, to, to refer back to. Is that why the Veterans Committee or some form of the Veterans Committee was put together? That's true. That's, that's the reason. Mm-hmm. And, and, and reason being, too, that some of the, uh, some of the owners in the Negro League, you know, were, were white owners. And uh, respected people, and uh, you know, uh, so we had like a balance uh, committee, so that when you, they had seen each one of these players play for a long, long time, and they could compare them, you know, with with the white players, and uh, we went on each one, and of course, uh, uh, that's that's that had a great impact on 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 on, uh, on that getting, and, and Satchel was the, was the first one that. Admitted uh, uh, mm-hmm. to the Hall of Fame in 1971, and you go into 1973, I believe, correct? Yeah. Uh-huh. Behind me, me though, of course, was Josh Gibson, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, before me was uh, uh, Josh Gibson and Buck Leonard. They went in together. Well, you know what's amazing too? I don't know. I'm I'm 39 years old, and and I've tried to read some things, and and I've been in contact with the Negro League Hall of Fame in Kansas City. As I said, I've gotten to know Mr. O'Neill a little bit over the years. I don't know if anybody my age or a little bit older would understand when you talk about an East-West All-Star game or even a regular season game in the Negro Leagues, we weren't talking about just a few people coming out. This was an event, was it not? Oh, it was. It, it was. People came from 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 everywhere. You know, uh, particularly uh, they came from uh, you know Texas. They came from uh, Mississippi, Alabama, uh, Arkansas. Uh, you know, all parts of the of, of the country. Uh, Memphis, Tennessee, you know, uh, and and they made it. The game was on Sunday, so they would start to come in on on Friday night and make it a whole weekend and an make event. It, make it just a wonderful weekend. Mm. Yeah. Now I, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask. I mentioned 1951. You had an incredible year, but so did the team. Everybody knows last year the 50th anniversary of Bobby Thompson's shot heard around the world. Mm-hmm. We, we've heard some other stories come about about the signal. And then stealing some signs and doing some things. Now Willie Mays told me he was too young; he had no idea what was going on. How about you? Oh yeah. Well, uh, during the, during the course of the season, we used to get, get you know we take the signs once in a while. But during that in, in that playoff, we didn't we voted not to not to do that, and 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 we didn't. Contrary to what you know, some some other uh, players have mm-hmm. said, we did not we did not uh, you know. Uh, try to steal any signals, you know, electronically, uh, you know, uh, do, during that series. Well, you got pounded one game at home that series, did you not? 
You well, guys could beat up pretty. We won the first game in Brooklyn, and they won the second game ten to nothing. Right. So if if we were stealing <laughs> signs, we weren't doing you know a very good job. Time to check that system, I would guess. Yeah, that's true. And then uh, you know, in the, in, in, the, in the third game, we're down four to one in the ninth inning. So you know, uh, uh, some writer uh, just wanted to you know start a controversy, mm-hmm. and I think that's the that's the reason why he wrote wrote the story the way he did. But I just want to say this. 1951 was every athlete should experience what we did that year because uh, we were in the middle of August with 13 and a half games behind and DeRocha said one thing. He said let's see how close we could come. He never said let's catch them. He said let's see how close we could, we could come. So we started to win and was, you know we, we kept on winning and winning and all of a sudden you know we're tied and then uh, any truth to the story that sometime in August, I believe when you played the Dodgers, they were kind of whooping it up in uh, in the locker room, and you guys kind of shared a common wall, and you heard them talking about the Giants being dead, and I guess Jackie Robinson, who didn't like Leo DeRocha, he kind of was giving Leo the business, and, and it was almost as if they thought that season had ended in August instead of carrying through till September. Oh, sure. Uh, we, we had, uh, well, was, that, that happened early. You know, I think it put us back, uh, 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 you know, 13 games. And uh, they were hooping up, uh, you know, they could hear them in the, in the you know, the clubhouse was real close together. Mm-hmm. And I said, eat your heart out, Leo, you'll never win it this year, you know. <laughs> you. And uh, so DeRoche said, fellas, he said, that should be a great incentive for us to, you know, to get started and, 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 uh, and show them how good we are. And no offense to the cities like St. Louis and Chicago, but the fact that all of this takes place in New York, doesn't that seem to add to the whole yeah. story? Oh, yeah, 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 you know. Uh, you had three teams in New York, and you know, had great writers and so on. Great tradition. Mm-hmm. Uh, Yankee Stadium, Polo Grounds, you know, uh, Everett's Field. So it, it, it magnified things. Last thing for you, Mr. Irvin, and I greatly, again, appreciate your time tonight. The one thing I've also asked some players who came out of your era, did you discuss with other players the absurdity of the fact that you were good enough to serve in World War II, yet when you came back you weren't sure if you were going to be able to make a living in the major leagues? Yeah, uh, we 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 said to we said well, you know when we particularly uh, uh, barnstorming or something we would uh, you know we played against some of the white players and we said uh, hey hey you know hey Bob or you know hey Bob fellow hey you know some somebody else uh, we like to uh, you know play up here we think we're good enough you know, why don't you talk it up so maybe we can uh, you know we can help you win and, and, and mm-hmm. earn some more money so some of them did some of them didn't. But it was it was stupid. The whole thing was stupid. And I'm glad it got straightened out. Well, it did in time, certainly, for you to make your appearances. You mentioned people like Ray Dandridge and others who really didn't get that time. So congratulations, certainly, on that. It's a shame it didn't happen sooner. Um, I, I very much was interested in reading about your life and the things you're doing now. I know you went to work for baseball. Uh, you did that for a while, and you, you seem to be just enjoying life these days. Well, I've been retired now 18 years, and uh, it's, it's been, a, you know, it's been a real ball. I uh, hope I can live a few more years. And uh, What do you do with yourself these days? Well, uh, you know, we, I used to play tennis. And mm-hmm. I had uh, had a knee injury. had both knees replaced. And uh, usually now I like to watch a lot of TV, uh, go down and see some spring training games. Do you every once in a while get phone calls from people like myself just saying, hey, Mr. Irvin, just wanted to touch base with you? Oh, yeah, yeah. We, I, 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 like to, I still like to talk about baseball. 
Uh, the only thing I, I, don't, I can't understand is, you know, how, how players can make so much money <laughs> and uh, how high tickets, you know, what the cost of tickets are, uh, you know, to see a ball game. I just hope that it levels off someplace because uh, a lot of people, you know, won't know anything about the game because they won't be able to, to pay and go see them. Well, it's certainly been a problem for a while, and I know actually it's really funny. I read articles from the sporting news in the 1930s that said, oh, the baseball baseball is going to be ruined because Babe Ruth is making this much and Lou Gehrig is making this much, and it's almost laughable when you read about the numbers they were talking about back then, especially with no free agency and That's and true. and what before Kurt Flood obviously was the norm mm-hmm. in the major leagues. Yeah. The norm used to be, uh, you know, hundred thousand. He made a hundred thousand. You know, that was like uh, that, that was that was that was that was the top. And I know that a lot of a couple of players who made a hundred thousand early, boy, they were given the business in the ballparks if they had a bad day. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh-huh. But today it's expected, and, and uh, you know, well, it just keeps going up. I believe Joe DiMaggio once said somebody asked him how much he would have been worth, and if George Steinbrenner was the owner, he said he would have walked into his office and said, "How you doing, partner?" Mm-hmm. Well, others, Musial, yep. Williams, Fowler, you know, right on down the line could have said that. Well, Mr. Irvin, again, a great honor and a pleasure to speak to you tonight. Thank you very much for spending some time, and thank you for obviously some of the stories that you were able to tell to us tonight. Well, it's been wonderful. Baseball is the most wonderful game in the world, and I'm just so happy I had a chance to play it. Well, as a fellow Jerseyite also, um, I know there are certain people that the state holds in pretty high regard, whether it comes to athletics or academics, and I know uh, you've been inducted into a few Hall of Fames, and I believe the one in New Jersey also has mm-hmm. your name in it. Yeah. Well, thanks again. In a total of eight. Eight, eight Hall of Fames? Yeah. Negro League Hall of Fame, New Jersey Hall of Fame, Baseball Hall of Fame. Yeah. A Mexican? Puerto Rican. Okay. Cuban, Mexican, <laughs> Alabama, right on down the line. Well, good for you, sir. Again, it, it it's certainly nice to know that people are going to remember some of the things you and your um, your companions and the people who were doing what you were doing back then were, were actually able to accomplish. Well, I hope so, and it's just been a pleasure to have performed. Baseball, again, is, is, is so wonderful, and, and uh, I just hope it... Uh, uh, we, we can keep developing uh, players that uh, you know that are talented, mm-hmm. and can hit, run, field, throw, and hit for power. And maybe some players who understand their history as well, because it wasn't an easy trek to where it is today. Certainly, and a lot of people paved the way. Oh, that's right. Well, uh, I'm sure that the, the message is going to get around, and, and, the, and the museum in Kansas City yep. will, will help that uh, you know to happen. You are correct, Mr. Irvin. I really appreciate your time this evening. Have yourself a great night. It used to be. Huge crowds on opening day. A mayor used to throw out the first ball, or Joe Lewis, or or uh, uh, Lena Horne, or Ella Fitzgerald was a special guest. You must take the A train to go to Sugar Hill way up in Harlem. Get on the A train soon. You will be on Sugar Hill in Harlem. Monty, growing up, you'll have to play the cards that's dealt to you. He said, in order to be a success, you have to always try to do the right thing. You reap what you sow, and then also live by the golden rule. I've always tried to do that. I think that's one of the reasons why I've lived as long as I have. When he was called up, we knew that uh, if he succeeded, that it would mean the demise of the Negro League, but uh, we all realize, too, that uh, you have to pay a price for progress. You know, I played in the bus leagues for many years. Overworked, underpaid, but somehow now, this does not seem to be in vain. And I hope my induction 
will help to ease the pain of all those players who never got a chance to play in the majors. Next stop is Harlem Tech, the H-Men. 